One of the fascinating things I think that we found in completing this study was how important this financial access seems to be. It's one thing to show a statistical relationship. If it's kind of meaningless in the grand scheme of life, there's this big difference between statistical significance and actually meaningful difference. But I think in this case, it's both of those things. It's a substantial and meaningful difference that we found that was surprising to us. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To learn more, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. Welcome. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast for Lehigh University's College of Business. Today is May 4th, 2023, and we're talking with Todd Watkins about his recent research on how access to financial services affects the risk of death from COVID-19 globally. Dr. Watkins is a professor of economics and has served as executive director of the Martindale Center for the Study of Private Enterprise at Lehigh since 2015. Author of more than 75 related publications, his research and teaching focus on the intersection of innovation, entrepreneurship, public policy, and financial tools for sustainable development. The study we'll discuss today was published recently on PLOS Global Public Health. In addition to Todd, the study was co-authored by five Data for Impact Fellows from across Lehigh University in economic, business, computer engineering, and science, and statistics. They are Kwei Nguyen, Hamza Ali, Rishikesh Gamakanda, Jacques Pelman, and Brianna Teresina. Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast, Todd. Well, I appreciate you having me, Jack. It's going to be a great conversation. Yeah, so you've been researching the impact of access to financial services on the lives of people around the world for many years now, from what was then known as microfinancing to the latest innovations in fintech. I think it would be helpful to start by providing an overview of what you've learned from your prior research about the role that financial services play in the daily lives of people, particularly in nations where poverty is prevalent. That's a wonderful question to start with. I think at the 30,000 sort of foot level, um, right? maybe a few bullet point ideas that come to mind. One is that uh, years and years ago, the tradition in banking was kind of to ignore the poor. They, they had, you know, no money. How could they possibly need financial services? What would they do with them? And I think it's quite the opposite that, that what I've learned over the years of studying this sector is that the poor actually might have significantly more need for financial services than the rest of us because their lives and their income flows are so uncertain that financial tools can really help them navigate the uncertainties of their of their day-to-day activities and lives um, you know, and maybe be much more impactful on their own families than our own financial services. So that's kind of the big picture that got me really interested in this space. Uh, I'd also say that it's been over the decades impressive to see how profitable this sector has become. Uh, Most of the institutions who are offering microfinancial services around the globe, I I think are self-sustainable these days. They're not charities anymore. It really is 
broadly a commercial industry um, and self-sustaining. It doesn't uh, rely, uh, it does take grants and um, donations, but it doesn't rely on that for expansion and scale. Um, and scale and scope have become really wide. The, the lines are very blurred now between what microfinancial services, impact finance is, and what mainstream banking is. It's really hard to tell where one starts and one stops. What was it that led you to look specifically at the impact of usage and access to financial services on the risk of death from COVID-19 globally? Well, before COVID hit, I had been following the sector and interested in the impact of financial services generally and the role of them in health. Lehigh is introducing this College of Health, my Department of Economics. We have several health economists in there. So there's this, uh, it's in the ether uh, around me, the importance of health and economic issues in public health. And I had been following the microfinance sector, uh, offering around the fringes of offering basic financial services. They had started offering health services and other social services kind of built into the packaging, if you will, of accessing other financial services. They have an infrastructure and tool sets that can help them offer other sorts of services. So it was kind of there. But... There was a small literature in the academic world about whether microfinance uh, was related or financial services were related to general health outcomes for families around the globe. You know, do kids get better nutrition? Do families uh, visit doctors more often? Are they able to pay for services? Uh, you know, sort of insurance products are a fairly obvious use of financial services for healthcare, but because the Public health is such a complicated problem. Um, it's really been hard to tease out whether it matters or not, whether these financial services kind of help people's health. There's so many other things in people's lives and what's going on around them that make it uh, difficult to understand that. When COVID hit, um, it was just such a huge shock to the system uh, everywhere um, that uh it's an unfortunate statistical reality that a big shock like that might actually show up in other evidence, right? It'd be easier to find statistical evidence if there's a big shock. And shock absorbing is one of the big themes in microfinancial services, that by providing financial tools like savings accounts and loans and uh, microinsurance products, it helps families absorb shocks to their daily lives. If they if they if they get sick for a week or if they can't work for a week and they have no income, they can go to their bank account and use some of that money to pay for food for their kids. That sort of financial shock absorber is a thing. It's it's a theme in microfinancial services, and so it's a natural extension of all that. When COVID hit, did financial service access help people absorb the shock of that happening, either in their health or in their income flows? Now, your study only looks at COVID-19 through September 2021, which is when the first Omicron variant appeared. So why was that date selected as the cutoff point? Oh, that's a good question. Um, really two pretty straightforward uh, reasons. One is that when we had the team assembled, it was in uh, late uh, 21 uh, into 22. So, you know, we had this, we had to... Uh, use the available data. Why did we pick September 2021? Well, it was shortly after that that Omicron hit. 
the world, but Omicron was spreading at very different rates around the globe, right? So some countries were experiencing it, others were not experiencing it. And the way it manifested in public health was very different than previous versions of COVID still is. We needed to pick a cutoff date for when the study was. And instead of just sort of picking some arbitrary date, hey, this is when the team got together, we went with a date that was a month or two before Omicron started getting detected. It just seemed clean and it made our lives a lot simpler, not having to worry about other complexities that Omicron might be introducing into the statistical analysis. Talk a little about the financial services tools that you looked at in the study. And there were those that are called formal and also alternative or informal. So could you define each of those and give us some examples of what those would include? Formal banking services are generally what we think of as traditional banking, right? So you have bank accounts, savings accounts, uh, you get loans from a bank, you might use a credit card, uh, and so on. So those would be in the broad definition of formal financial services, maybe more traditional financial services. But people use a, a wide array of other financial tools, if you will, um, or accessing finance in different ways than going through banks and insurance companies. You might get a, a loan from your uncle uh, or your mom, right? Friends and family as informal financial tools are an important characteristic in much of the developing world and among poor communities. Uh, they rely on informal financial services in a lot more ways. Um, Another informal technique is, hey, if you get sick and you need to go to the doctor, you're going to sell your cow or you're going to sell off some financial asset that the or some uh, household asset that you might own. It's called distress financing. So that would be an informal approach to dealing with uh, you know, some sort of shock or some sort of need. Alternative services uh, that are emerging are pretty important in the developing world primarily in the area of sort of digital and mobile money. Um, mobile money, just as an example, in Kenya, a large fraction of people in Kenya use cell phones. 80 or 90 percent of the population has them. And every cell phone in the country comes packaged with mobile money uh, app right on it. You don't need a bank account. You don't need anything except the mobile phone to use this stuff. And then you can send money around the country. And it's way cheaper for people to do that than use a bank or to go to an ATM. So access to mobile money services uh, is one of these emerging uh, alternatives that are much more common, uh, weirdly, in places like Kenya than they are even in the United States. Um, so that's what we mean by sort of informal services and uh, emerging alternatives. The other side of the study was, was the, and you'd mentioned this already, the complexity of, of health and um, how it makes it more difficult to, you know, tease out the health effects of um, any particular area, including the uh, expanding financial services. So what are some of the most challenging, and in the study you would call them, confounding factors that you faced in doing this? And without drilling down too deeply into the methodology you employed, how did you ultimately tease out the health effects of expanding financial services. That's really one of the bugaboos of, of research in this space. Public health and population health, as you can imagine, is an amazingly complicated 
problem or a complicated uh, ecosystem, right? You have mm -hmm. wealth in general, wealthy people, wealthy countries can do different things than poor people, poor countries. You have big differences in healthcare systems. So this was a global study. We looked at a whole bunch of different countries, hundreds, 140 countries, I think, uh, around the globe. So just huge differences in their health policies and their health infrastructures, uh, how many clinics are available, trained nurses, doctors, uh, that sort of difference. You have lifestyle differences in the populations, right? Do people eat a lot of fatty foods? Are they obese? Uh, they have a lot of lung cancer. Is smoking problematic? Uh, do kids get vaccinations early in life? Do you have a big COVID vaccination system? Um, and on and on and on. So it's very complex. There's so many things that matter for population level health outcomes and mortality rates that finding evidence that financial services might matter also in addition to all that other stuff uh, has been really challenging. Um, I think in part because that all that other stuff matters so much that financial services might be kind of in the noise uh, of all those other important determinants of public health outcomes. And so it's been challenging for people who are interested in that connection between insurance products and other financial service products and health outcomes uh, to find evidence, especially in microfinance, because we're talking about tools that are very small, hundreds of dollars of loans or savings accounts in the hundreds of dollars, uh, micro insurance that covers $50 to go visit a doctor. Does that really matter when all that other stuff is probably more important? And so uh, what we used methodologically uh, it was kind of standard econometric, standard statistical tools for doing that. But the difference was, unfortunately, that COVID was such a big shock to the system that, you know, maybe we're beyond the noise level of what was going on. And maybe we could tease out something. That was one of the main things that prompted us to look at this, at this puzzle. So mm -hmm. the basic methodology for dealing with it was just controlling statistically for other things, separating out things like nurses per capita and GDP per capita and age distributions of the population. We just sort of teased that out statistically. One of the, the interesting and counterintuitive variables that you found was, I'll quote, that nations with higher per capita incomes had statistically significantly higher mortality rates even after controlling for characteristics associated with wealth, like aging and obesity, that might be problematic for richer nations. Though curious, this finding is consistent with most of the COVID-19 literature. So I know this was this finding was outside the, the scope of your study, but I, I wonder if you could talk a little about what might be going on there. That is such an interesting and remaining puzzle in this literature. Obviously, wealth should matter in whether you can get access to good health care and whether you can pay for going to the doctor and the medicines you need to do that and the treatments you need to deal with it. Um, and so uh, our going in assumptions as you know, kind of economists would be that wealthier nations should have been able to deal with COVID better than poorer nations and poorer populations. Um, and the opposite has turned out to be true, that wealthy countries, United States, the United Kingdom, um, have had really struggled with, uh, especially early on, really struggled with uh, mortality and had much higher rates of it. And so there were all sorts of hypotheses about what 
might be going on there, even after you start taking out or controlling for or uh, accounting for things that really probably do matter, like how many nurses do you have or how many hospital beds do you have? Um, uh, how many old people do you have in your population, right? Controlling for the age distribution. Um, old people died uh, a lot more from COVID than, than younger people did. You start removing some of those things that make a lot of sense, transportation, infrastructure, airports. There was a lot of hypotheses about airports uh, being a vector for COVID early on. So wealthy countries had a lot more airports and a lot more travelers coming and going. Maybe that was it. Even after you do all that stuff, this positive relationship between the overall wealth of an economy, uh, you know, GDP per capita, and uh, COVID, it was positive, even after removing some of those other things. So it's a puzzle and nobody has been able to tease this out. We added another piece to the puzzle, which was, yeah, wealthier countries have more financial tools and more financial access, and that seemed to help you in uh, dealing with COVID. So that actually made the puzzle even more puzzling, right? If it's not, um, <laughs> that's helping you. And yet the the GDP thing is still remained in our uh, in our in our study and other studies, and people are still working on this problem. Now, getting to the the main finding in your study, and I'll quote: "It was greater pre-pandemic national levels of use and access to formal financial services are related to substantially lower death rates from pre-Omicron COVID nineteen." So what do you mean by substantially lower death rates and how do they compare to other determinants of COVID-19 mortality? One of the fascinating things I think that we found in completing this study was how important this financial access seems to be. It's one thing to show a statistical relationship. If it's kind of meaningless in the grand scheme of life, yeah, you can find the statistical evidence that this is maybe pushing you a little bit in this direction or a little bit in that direction. So there's this big difference between statistical significance and actually meaningful difference. Uh, but I think in this case, it's both of those things. It's a substantial and meaningful difference that we found um, that was surprising to us. Uh, and just to give a sense of the scale of or the magnitude of this impact, um, we found, uh, I'll put it in a little bit uh, technical terms, but we found just as an example, if you go from the middle of the pack of um, access to financial services, we have countries ranked by their uh, population's ability to access a whole host of different financial services. But if you're sort of in the middle of that pack and you move one standard deviation as a country, up to maybe two thirds of the way through the distribution or a, a, a little bit higher access, one standard deviation, higher access to financial services at the population level. So more people are getting access to bank accounts, savings accounts, insurance products, and so on. Um, that mortality is cut in half from COVID. After you control for all the other things that we've put in our model, like age distributions and wealth per capita, and so on. So uh, it's actually an amazingly big uh, difference that you one standard deviation moving from half middle of the pack to two thirds of the way up the pack. Uh, COVID mortality rates, uh, if you went from two thirds to half, COVID mortality rates would 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 double. Um, so it's it's an amazing difference. What's that compared to? 
one of the other big factors in COVID mortality in the public health literature has been, it's fairly obvious, lung cancer. Right. Uh, COVID is a respiratory disease. Uh, and so countries that had high lung cancer incidence where people had a lot of respiratory problems already, um, if you did the same one standard deviation change in lung cancer, uh, a country that was in the middle of the pack, and then it compare that to a country that's two thirds of the way up the pack in lung cancer, they had about uh, two thirds of uh, an increase in COVID mortality, right? So it's roughly the same magnitude of the, as the scale of, but the opposite direction, more lung cancer, more COVID, we found more financial access, less COVID. And those are roughly the same order of magnitude in impact. So uh, another example is income inequality. So one of the big things that people have noticed around the globe is that places where there's high inequality, big differences between the wealthy and the poor, the poor were getting hammered with COVID compared to the rich within individual countries. The same thing was happening uh, you know, uh, all, over the, all over the world, um, that poor people and marginalized populations were really getting much more severe um, uh, problems with, with COVID and COVID mortality. And that influence is about 50% of the influence that we found in terms of the relative impact. So uh, financial services uh, turned out to be a really big deal. Now, you write that within the study that excluding access to financial services from other studies, quote, may be a major gap in the literature relating to COVID-19 mortality. And I think you've done a, a good job of, of just explaining why that may be the case. And do you see your research as having broader implications for public health research beyond COVID-19? Yeah, it was more or less the last sentence in our, uh, in our study, uh, in our conclusions. That's more or less what we said is that the literature in public health, it doesn't ignore financial services, but it tends to focus in a different way, right? Insurance is fairly obvious that that's important. Medicare, Medicaid studies are all over the place. Uh, a lot of people study nationalized healthcare systems where the you know national uh, healthcare is free for people. But other forms of financial services can also be relatively important, especially in developing or poor economies. Um, as I mentioned, shock absorbing is a really important characteristic of financial services. If you have a bank account, if you have a savings account, even if you don't have insurance, that can be your insurance. You can go and take money out of your bank if you have a bank to go and take money out of uh, to pay for going to the doctor or paying for the medicine for your kid. Um, you can put it on credit cards. You can go to a payday lender even. Uh, and uh, get a loan in advance of your paycheck that's coming in. Those are financial services that are insurance-like in that sense that might be related to health. And I think those secondary elements beyond insurance have not gotten nearly as much attention in the public health literature as our study indicates might be justified. Um, maybe COVID is different in the way it behaved around the globe, um, but uh, my intuition is that probably not. There's probably all sorts of other public health implications of these secondary tertiary financial services and or informal sector approaches to it um, that we have yet to really delve deeply into. 
just as an example, uh, remittances is, is one of those things that around the globe. People send money across the globe to fan, friends and family in other countries. I recently sent a couple hundred dollars to a friend of mine in Kenya. His daughter was really sick. She needed to go to the doctor. He couldn't uh, uh, that week pay for it. So I helped him do that. Um, and I just sent him you know, money internationally to help his kid go to the doctor. That's not insurance, but it's an informal friend and family kind of deal of insurance. That's certainly what happened there. Um, so I think there's a big role there. Um, one of the literatures that is fairly robust is in what's called distress financing. I mentioned this before, but if you get sick or you have a crisis in your family, you can sell off your household assets to pay for that. Um, mm -hmm. But most of the literature points in the opposite direction, which is what's the effect of health on your need to do distress financing or does it distress your does it distress your family and does it distress your ability to do other things in your life, send your kids to school and so forth? So the directionality is kind of the reverse. What I'm suggesting is that here the directionality is if you have more robust services and tools that you can use in a wider array of them, that might actually influence your health as much as health influencing your finance. Um, right. uh, so most of the studies in the literature have, even in the COVID literature, have studied what's been the impact of COVID on people's finances. What's been the impact of COVID on bank finances? What's been the impact of COVID on organizational uh, finances and, uh, and sustainability. And I'm flipping it on his head. Now we, we've talked about a lot of different things here, obviously um, related to your study. I just wanted to give you a chance. Is there's anything I haven't asked about that uh, you think our listeners should know? Well, you started with it and uh, <laughs> let me just um, praise the team that we worked with to make this happen. So just the backs, it's not about the research, it's just about the, the research team and the process that I'm particularly proud of. When COVID hit uh, back in uh, a couple of years ago, uh, a lot of students lost opportunities to do internships uh, during the summers. And so uh, the Martindale Center that I run and the Creative Inquiry Office at Lehigh we uh, cooked up this data for impact experience for uh, students to participate as research on research teams with faculty members over the summers. Um, the last few summers uh, this program has run, you know, about 80 students joined the very first summer on a whole bunch of different research projects having to do with data with an emphasis on some sort of impactful outcome. Um, so data for impact, D4I. Mm -hmm. And so these five students that you mentioned at the beginning, they're all undergraduate students and um, they participated on this team and we built a database with all this COVID and health uh, and economic relationship data in it. Some of the students were in computer science, computer engineering, so they had database experience. Several of them were in math and statistics, so they were able to help work on the statistical problem solving. One of them was an economics student, so you know it's in my discipline. Um, so that team was all undergraduate students and me. And so I'm particularly proud of the fact that we got a publication before these students even graduated from college. They're going to walk out of Lehigh with a, a professional peer-reviewed academic publication under their belt. And it's fairly deep statistics uh, that we tackled. So uh, I'm pretty proud of that. All right. That's fantastic. Todd. It really is. Um, 
We're just about out of time. So I want to thank you for being with us today. Well, I appreciate your uh, being interested in it. And it was a interesting and very challenging project for us. And um, uh, glad we were able to get through. I think we're going to pursue more along this line of inquiry as we discussed there. I think there's a lot more to be done. Todd Watkins has published in the journal Science, as well as Research Policy, Issues in Science and Technology, Technology Review, Small Business Economics, Industrial Relations, Environmental Science and Technology, and other journals and books. He also is author of the book Introduction to Microfinance on the International Microfinance Industry and Inclusive Financial Services for the Poor. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. And today's podcast, I think, is a good representative of the way that Lehigh faculty and students working together um, can create new knowledge in their field. To hear more podcasts featuring Lehigh business thought leaders, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Lehigh Business. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast. Thanks for listening.